Jesus' name. Amen. So we have finally come to the end of our study on the spiritual gifts. Finally, I say after um, after weeks of delay because of COVID and everything. Um, I think this was supposed to be ending three weeks ago, maybe a month ago. I don't know. But today we're going to be diving into sort of the heart of this study, at least the topic that has generated the most dialogue and dissenting views amongst evangelicals. And that is, I'm going to present a case, actually a couple of cases, that the New Testament sign, or the New Testament miraculous gifts of prophecy, tongues, and healing have ceased to function in our current context. And I don't, this shouldn't be a, a huge surprise for those of you who've been following this study from Tom Schreiner's book. It's been relatively clear so far that the, that the argument of this book comes from a cessationist perspective. And today we're going to look into greater detail into Schreiner's argument for cessationism. But we, before we look at, at his argument, I want to provide a, a brief view of the, of the landscape of the cessationist de- debate. I want to show us the, vers- the variety of different cessationist positions. It's become clear to me, which I don't think I fully understood before studying this this week, but it's become abundantly clear to me, that not all cessationists are created equal. It's been helpful to me to think of differing types of cessationists on a type of spectrum. Um, On the left end of the spectrum, I guess that's your right, so I'm going to mess this up. So I'm going to say the left end of the spectrum, um, I would call classical cessationists. This is the position that the spiritual gift of tongues, prophecy, and healing no longer function in our age with the completion of the New Testament canon and the end of the apostolic age. But these classical cessationists would affirm that God can and still does miracles in the world. So God sometimes acts out of his ordinary providential means to accomplish his purposes. So God may give visions or dreams or heal someone from a terminal disease. The key here is that these miracles, right, for the classical cessationists, are not tied to any revelatory authority. So meaning, unlike the New Testament, where God granted these miraculous spiritual gifts as an attestation to the authority of the prophets and the apostles who taught and spoke authoritatively. So miracles that occur today are not like that. They're not like those. And that they they have no ultimate authority over the Christian's life. And, this is important, they give no revelatory authority to the person who's experienced the miracle. So the classical cessationist position is very keen on clarifying that yes, God can still perform miraculous wonders in our context, but they have no ultimate authority in the Christian's life, which is different than, than the miracles and sign gifts we see in the New Testament. So there's a lot of proponents of this position. I think it's the most definitely the most popular form of cessationism. Um, 
adherents to it include a very important scholar, Richard Gaffin. He's a Presbyterian from Westminster, I think, or used to be there. Um, retired. Thank you. Um, and the popular pastor who's been very critical of the charismatic movement, John MacArthur. So that, yes. What do you think I mean? <laughs> so if, if a miracle happens today to you, um, or say you have a dream, vision, something like that, I would say that, that does not have the same authority as the New Testament or the, the scriptures. So the ultimate authority for the Christian will always be the scriptures. That's what I mean by ultimate authority. So on the right end of the spectrum is what has been academically characterized as full cessationists. So these are cessationists who believe everything I just said about classical cessationism, at least in the regarding of the ceasing of these three gifts. But they also believe that all miracles, even untied to the spiritual gifts, no longer occur. Um... This is the view of the Princeton theologians in the early 20th century, most famously B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Machen. Um, Their argument is honestly very complicated. I read it, like in the primary sources. And it's not that long ago, but it seems like they write in a different form of English. Um, (laughs) So I don't even know if I fully understand their position. So take this for a grain of, or with a grain of salt. Um, But their argument comes on their definition of miracle. And again, I'm not going to state this that strongly because I'm, I'm relying on secondary sources explaining their positions. Um, and, but both of these guys, specifically Warfield, spent the bulk of, or Macon, Machen, spent the bulk of their ministries fighting against theological liberal, liberalism and defending the validity of the New Testament miracles and then to test the necessity of them for proper doctrine, for, for Christian theology. But they do, and specifically Warfield, seem to discount the validity of miracles in the current modern age as being either false, accidental, or imaginary and not being able to be proven specifically rationalistically proven. So, that is kind of the, that's the right end of the full cessationist um, spectrum. So not only did the miraculous sign gift cease, but also modern miracles have ceased as well. Just curious, is there anyone who believes that in here? You're not in trouble. I, I've, I've wanted to meet one, so... <laughs> Which, I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who believes this, so I don't even know if it's helpful to have a spectrum, because I don't know if it's a, like a popular belief that people have today. But that's what the books say. But if we allow for the existence of this spectrum of cessationists, then I think we must realize there, there are more nuanced positions within these two broad camps of classic and full um, cessationists. I've also read and remember being taught 
and seminary of a very small, probably even smaller than the full cessationist, minority position called a consistent cessationist, who believed not only did all the miraculous gifts cease, but all New Testament offices cease. So they're, they're, not only are there no longer tongues, prophecy, miracles, but there's no longer apostles, prophets, and there's no longer pastors, elders, deacons, and so forth. Again, I haven't met anyone believing this. I hope you don't believe this. I would be out of a job. Blake would be out of a job. That would be sad for us. But another fairly popular view, and this would be to the left of classical cessationism, is what is sometimes called concentric cessationism. Concentric cessationism. This belief is made popular by a scholar named Daniel Wallace from DTS, argues that we should not view the ceasing of the miraculous gifts in a linear fashion. So in other words, Wallace argues that there wasn't a moment in time when the gifts began to cease, but the gifts began to cease in correlation to the spread and influence of the gospel message. This is where the idea of concentric comes from, or denoting a circle. So for Wallace, the gospel and its spread is like a stone hitting water with various concentric or circular ripples that move out from the center. The center being the, the New Testament church in Acts. And so the further these ripples or the gospel go out into new waters, or the, the outermost parts of the world, or the outermost circles of the center, the presence of the miraculous gifts are present. The idea is, as, as the gospel moved out from the, from the Middle East and the early church and ad, advanced through the world, the presence of the miraculous gifts were there and only ceased once the church was established in that place. And once the church had, had deep roots and is established in a place is then when the gifts, the miraculous gifts, will cease. So in this view, then, the, the miraculous gifts of tongues and healing specifically are still operative or, or still in existence in pioneer mission settings or places where the gospel is being proclaimed and churches are being established for the first time in human history. I find this to be a fascinating argument, very interesting. I'm not totally convinced by it. Um, but I think it does give a category for... Um, you know, the many stories of miraculous events on the mission field, I've heard some of these. Um, I'm sure maybe you've heard some second-hand account, accounts of, of individuals who, who've witnessed miracles or uh, learned to speak in a language they didn't know, which I think would be the gift of tongues. Now, Schreiner, in our book, he doesn't bring up these categories, and he considers himself what he calls a nuanced cessationist, a nuanced cessationist. I think what he means by this is he allows for, for exactly this category, specifically for healing, that miraculous healing may occur in pioneer mission settings. So in some sense, I think Schreiner would fit in the concentric cessationist camp, although I don't think he would say that, but I don't know if he knows even what that is. But I... I don't think, actually, I know he doesn't believe 
um, the gift of tongues and prophecy is occurring anywhere today, even on the mission field. And that is because he ties both of those gifts, as we saw in previous lessons, to divine revelation. And so I would consider myself personally in, in the more classical cessationist camp. Um, but there's the big spectrum. Any questions, comments on, on any of that? It does make a lot of sense. Yeah, I would put, the, like, in my mind, I say there's classical and then concentrics like a, a subcategory because not all classical cessationists would be concentric, um, but they would definitely be considered classical, if that makes sense. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of stories like that that we probably can all attest to, which I think really makes that view appealing. Um, Yes. We'll see more of why I kind of have a hard time with it theologically, but I really think it's a legitimate position and a good position. Um, so I want us to open up the scriptures, see what they have to say, and to consider a couple of arguments for cessationism. And just up front, I'll say that I'm a lot more convinced by one of these arguments than the other, which will become obvious in a moment. But there are really two main arguments that I want to focus on today. And the first comes from 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12. I'm going to read it for us. Paul writes, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So a very popular cessationist interpretation, especially in dispensational circles, comes from an interpretation of this verse. And we can see pretty clear, clearly here that Paul is making the point that the spiritual gifts, specifically of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, will not last forever. Verse 8 makes clear there's, there's going to be a time when these gifts cease to function. Schreiner points out that that some scholars argue that the difference in the verb for tongues, where, where Paul writes, as for tongues they will cease, which is different than prophecy and knowledge, which will pass away. Notice that, that difference. Some make the case that tongues, because of the different verb used there, um, will cease in and of themselves, or, or unrelated to the passing away of prophecy and knowledge. So that's a possible interpretation. Uh, I think the better reading is to view all of these verbs as pretty much synonymous terms. Schreiner argues um, the grammatical difference in the verbs are probably just used more for, for Paul as a, as a stylistic difference, and we shouldn't press too hard on any distinction just from the words. But the key to this argument is found in verse 10, where Paul writes, 
when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So in this cessationist view, it is commonly believed that the perfect that Paul is referring to, or referring to here, is referring to the New Testament canon. Uh, And in this view, the gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge ceased or passed away when the perfect came, that is, the New Testament canon. Others have a little more nuanced view and believe the perfect refers not to the canon itself, but to the spiritual maturity that comes as a result of having the New Testament canon. So in this view, the spiritual gifts that are listed here are no longer necessary because we now have the New Testament canon, which is all we need for spiritual maturity or or, or sanctification. So one of the appeals of both of these views is that it makes this whole argument a lot more simple. If the perfect refers to the New Testament canon, then there really is no debate about this issue. The case is closed. With the coming of the perfect, the scriptures, then these gifts have passed away. They have ceased. It's very nice and tidy. The the door is shut. So I definitely understand the appeal of this argument, but I'm sure you can tell in my tone I don't agree with it. Um, And as we'll see a little later on, it's very similar. Other cessationist arguments use very similar categories for arguing for the ceasing of these gifts. But the question we have to ask, the question Schreiner asks in his book is this. Is the the New Testament canon actually what Paul is talking about when he says the perfect in verse 10? And I'm going to make the argument, no, this is a a misunderstanding of the text. Although I think, and I want to be charitable here, I think these cessationists who hold this view have right motives, ultimately have the right position have the right view, but I think they're getting there maybe from the wrong text and theological categories. So Schreiner is pretty strong here. He calls this argument in his book uh, an unconvincing argument for cessationism. And the reason he gets there are are quite a few. And uh, the continuationist scholar D.A. Carson actually has a pretty more longer extensive um, study on these verses that I found pretty helpful and insightful. But Schreiner's first point against this argument is to target the idea that the perfect is actually spiritual maturity, not the canon itself, but spiritual maturity. And Schreiner's main issue with this argument is that it implies that Christians post the New Testament canon, post post having the scriptures, are even more spiritually mature than the apostles, or more spiritually mature than the apostle Paul, which honestly I think is a little ludicrous. I don't think anyone would actually say that out loud, but I think that's a logical implication of their position, which I think is a problem. As far as the belief that the perfect is the New Testament canon, Schreiner also has a pretty big issue, primarily with what he calls the historical location of when Paul was writing this letter. And I think this is a a pretty convincing argument personally. Schreiner's argument is that Paul would definitely, when he was writing these letters, have believed that his words that he was writing to the Corinthian church were authoritative and even represented God's word. 
Um, I think this is clear throughout Paul's letters that he viewed what he was writing as the authoritative word of God. However, Schreiner's point is, and this is a quote, he says, God had never revealed to Paul that he was writing letters that would one day be collected with other New Testament writings that would function as the authority for churches down throughout history. So you see his point? Paul just wouldn't have had a category for a completed New Testament canon of Scripture. So he wouldn't, it wouldn't be a category in his head. And so Schreiner argues that it's almost impossible that Paul could have meant the New Testament Scriptures or the, the canonization of the Scriptures by the term the perfect. It just could, it wouldn't work in his mind. It couldn't be an intended meaning of Paul. Schreiner goes on to say, hypothetically, let's grant that position, that the perfect does mean the canon, that's, that, that is what Paul is intending. Even if, that what is, even if that's what Paul is meaning here, Schreiner makes the point that it would even be more unlikely that the Corinthians would have understood the word perfect to mean the New Testament canon. There's no way that the Corinthians would have understood the concept because, again, that concept didn't exist. So Schreiner's point is that if this is what Paul intended to mean, then he would have to, he would have, would have, have to given a lot more detail for his original audience to understand what he was meaning. And Paul is not a poor communicator, so we shouldn't assume that he is communicating poorly in any of his writings. It's just not how he writes. He's, he's brilliant. Therefore, we can conclude the perfect here in verse 10, probably does not mean the New Testament canon, or at least that's Schreiner's position, my position. And another simpler argument against this reading of the perfect is that if it is the New Testament canon, then we also would no longer have partial knowledge with the coming of the Scriptures. And the gift of knowledge, right? Notice here, the gift of knowledge would also cease. But I think it's pretty clear our, our knowledge is not complete, even with the scriptures. And I think the gift of knowledge, the spiritual gift of knowledge, is pretty clearly has not ceased. Um, so, what is the perfect then Paul is referring to? Schreiner and a, a host of other scholars believe the perfect is referring to the second coming of Christ. And if we look at the context of verses 8 through 12 here, we see that when the perfect comes, it will bring the partial to an end. In verse 12, Paul says, We know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So in the present age, then, our knowledge is incomplete, and we see only a reflection as in a mirror. The point is, we don't have full knowledge. But, and here, here's the key phrase in verse 12. So we now see an Amir dimly, but then, look down, it says, we see, then we'll see face to face. So this reference to face to face is commonly thought of to be Christ's second coming. Shriner makes the point that this phrase in the Old Testament almost always refers to um, when God encounters man or, or humanity physically, such as when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord or, 
or Moses um, was referred to as seeing Yahweh face to face in Deuteronomy after the, the encounter at Sinai. So the clear point Shriner is making is that this phrase, that exact phrase, face to face in verse 12, represents the language of a physical encounter with God. And so the most natural reading of the text, then, he would argue, is to see both the phrases face to face and the phrase the perfect as references to Jesus' second coming. That's just the most natural reading, he would argue, based on the context of Paul's writing in verses 8 through 12. So, if you take this argument to be true, then we have a problem, at least if you are a cessationist. Because it seems like Paul could be arguing that actually these gifts of tongues and prophecy will continue to function until the second coming of Christ. And I actually think this is the best argument for continuationism, although I don't think you should embrace it, but I do think this is the best (laughs) argument And I think if someone comes to the conclusion that these gifts are functioning until the return of Christ, they are well in line with the legitimate possible interpretation of Scripture. However, I don't think these verses in 1 Corinthians 13 require that these gifts not cease until the return of Christ. And that is because Shriner, we don't think this is the only place in the New Testament that speaks on this topic. To be fair, I don't think there's an explicit text in the New Testament that that says the miraculous gifts have ceased in our current age. But I do think there's there's theological precedent and one text in particular that Schreiner goes to to bolster his argument for cessationism. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, it's just one verse actually. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. And I'm going to read verses 18 through 22, just for some context. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple and the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So obviously, we just read this, obviously, this is not clear-cut talking about the cessation of gifts. And that is not Paul's main point here in Ephesians 2.20, so we have to put that on the table. But, By using theological reasoning, or what Schreiner calls theological deduction, we can make some inferences and truth claims from this text. The key here is Paul in this section of Ephesians is clearly referring to the church, and he's saying that those in Christ are no longer strangers and aliens to each other, but are citizens and members of the household of God, the church. Then our key phrase for this debate Paul says that those that are in Christ, those that are members of the household of God, or members of the church, which was built, this is the key, was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So this is the key verse for Schreiner and all most other classical cessationists. That's the one we're going to be camping out on. You might be thinking it's 
doing a lot with a little, but the fundamental idea deduced from this verse then is that the church is built on a foundation. The foundation left by the teaching and instruction given by the apostles and prophets. And an implication then of this verse is that once the foundation of the apostles and prophets was set, which is commonly believed to occur with the establishment of the canon of Scripture, with the New Testament canon, once that foundation is set, then the miraculous revelatory gifts will begin to die out and cease to function in the church. So that's the basis here for Schreiner's argument for cessationism. I personally find it more convincing than, than the argument in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, of course, you are clearly free to disagree because this is, we're getting into the weeds here of, of, of exegesis. But I'm not going to, to go into to every detail of how these, these gifts cease to function today because we've, we've gone into greater detail in, in, in previous lessons. So if you're unsatisfied with, with this talk, go listen to the ones on specifically the, the, the lessons on the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues for a more detailed um, explanation of how those gifts have ceased. Because much, much of what I'm about to say is pretty much a, just a repeat of those arguments. Schreiner argues that it's really uncontroversial to believe that the apostles that Paul is referring to here in verse 20 refers to the office of apostle that existed in the New Testament church. Pretty much everyone believes that. We see the 12 disciples were called apostles and Matthias who replaced Judas. We clearly see Paul is an apostle and James, the half-brother of Jesus, is identified as an apostle in Galatians. Um, Barnabas is designated as an apostle in Acts 16. So all of these men were apostles due to their, um, due to their, their eyewitness account of Jesus or a very close firsthand experience with his ministry that gave them a particular authority that is completely unique in the history of the church. They spoke authoritatively in a way no other humans will. And now that the foundation of the church has been laid, right, Ephesians 2.20, we no longer have authoritative apostles. Do you see the logic there? This is pretty standard belief, even amongst continuationists. Most evangelical continuationists believe the office and gift of apostle has ceased after the, the age of the apostles, after the, the apostles died. So I'm not going to spend much time here because pretty much everyone is in agreement that the apostles played a fundamental or, or a, a foundational role in establishing authoritative teaching that would govern the church. And when that teaching was solidified, canonized in the New Testament scriptures, there was no longer or need for that office and gifting. So that's uncontroversial. Now Ephesians 2.20 also says that the church has also been built on the foundation of the prophets. So I want you to see this connection. As we saw a few weeks ago, well, I guess like a month ago now, this topic is much more debated. But it seems clear from this text that the prophets played a key, I would say maybe even equal role, and the founding and establishing of the church as the apostles. And I think this makes complete sense and only makes sense 
if you adopt the view of the gift of prophecy that was argued for in this book, and just for a brief reminder, remember Schreiner argues that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament is infallible messages from God, meaning that they contain no error and must be submitted to completely, just, just exactly the same as Old Testament prophecy. Now that definition, I think, is key to the argument for cessationism made here. And I think this verse in Ephesians fits well with that idea of prophecy as authoritative, as completely authoritative, infallible, revelatory messages. Because Paul says their messages, right, their messages make up the foundation of the church, just like the apostles' messages. So in other words, Schreiner makes the point that, that both New Testament apostles and prophets spoke the authoritative word of God. And if the apostles don't exist today, which again, it's an overwhelmingly um, common position, but if the apostles don't exist today, then it follows that prophets and prophecy no longer exist today. The argument is the same since the foundation of the church has been set and the prophet's message has, has been canonized for the church. And the scriptures are now the authoritative text for the people of God. Then the gift of prophecy, much like the gift of apostleship, or um, is, is no longer necessary. It has ceased. So now there, there's some cessationists who will just stop there and they'll say, um, okay, I buy that. These two gifts have ceased, apostleship and prophecy. But for us, what about the, the gifts of tongues and miracles or healings? Tongues and miracles. So regarding the ceasing of tongues, um, much of our lesson on the gift of tongues focused on what the gift actually is in Scripture, if you remember. Which I made the argument that tongues in the New Testament are always known human languages and not ecstatic utterances that are unintelligible. And what we didn't get to, which is important for our lesson today, is that in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 5, Paul equates the same authority to interpreted tongues as prophecy, meaning that the message received from the gift of tongues should be received as the, as the authoritative word of God, just like prophecy. So now one issue charismatics will bring up here is the idea of, of private um, prayer language or, or, or private tongue speaking. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul does seem to allow for private tongue speaking as a mode of d private devotion or worship of the Lord. I don't fully understand how that works if there's no interpreter present, but it doesn't necessarily prove that this private speaking in tongues must be some different like prayer language or, or heavenly language, which is commonly uh, argued today. I don't think the existence of private tongue speaking necessitates some sort of different heavenly language. But back to the authority of tongue speaking, Paul equates interpreted tongues proclaimed and the gathering of believers with the same authority as prophecy. So that's key to this argument. If that is true, which I'm arguing to it's true, 
then it would naturally follow that if prophecy has ceased, because the foundation of the church is set, then so too tongues have ceased, if they are the same authority, if they, if they are the same as prophecy, an interpreted tongue. And I'm pretty satisfied with that line of thinking, and I would argue in that way that, that tongues have ceased to function in the New Testament context. Any questions on that? No. There's two verbs for prophecy and knowledge. That is, they will pass away. And then Paul says tongues will cease, I think. Is that right? Okay. Um, Some would argue that because there's a different verb used for tongues, it's, um, it's saying tongues will cease apart from prophecy or knowledge at a different time. Schreiner was making the argument, no, we should just view all those words as referring to the same thing. Like they're all going to cease or pass away. There's no distinction between those terms. Understanding fully what you mean? But <laughs> well, why, why don't we just talk after, or like yeah, six weeks ago? <laughs> um, yeah, how about we just talk after? And I, I think I understand what you're saying, but I can't fully. Okay. <laughs> or talk to Blake, might know. He's good. Um, healing, let's go to healing and miracles. In some ways, I think this is less important in the conversation of cessation because they aren't dealing with claims of divine revelation, um, at least not inherently. There are some who would do that today. Um, But having said that, I do think personally what passes today as the gift of healing is deceptive. And I'm personally just highly skeptical this gift still functions in our context. I don't have as strong biblical arguments, um, but my personal experience, which is not authoritative, but my personal experience would lend me to believe healings and miracles as gifts given by the Spirit um, has stopped. Because I don't know any Christian. I've known a lot of godly brothers and sisters, and I don't know one personally who has had this gift of healing or miracles where they can heal on demand or, or perform a miracle. Now, the way I think about this is that this gift, healing and miracles, would have affirmed, this is the way I think about it theologically, would have affirmed the authority of the apostles and prophets in the New Testament era. So without a New Testament scripture canon, uh, the prophets and apostles could have presumably needed miraculous signs of healing and miracles to, to give their truth claims credibility. And with the ending of apostleship and prophecy, with the New Testament canon, then I think it could follow that healing and miracles ceased as well, given that the foundation of the church has been set. If those healings and miracles were given as an attestation to the authority of the prophets and apostles. But I do understand, I really do understand why many cessationists from the concentric camp believe this gift functions in pioneer mission settings, right? Because then, as Roxanne was saying, it could also attest to the authenticity and power 
of the gospel and, and the gospel heralders in those contexts that have never known or, or have heard the gospel before. But I do think it's pretty safe to say, I think I'm safe to say this, it's rather clear that even if the gifts of healings and miracles ha haven't ceased completely, it's clearly not as prevalent in the church as it was in the New Testament. Right? I think that that is without question. So any comments, questions regarding healing miracles? And I think that's why I say I, I'm typically, no, I mean, I'm always highly skeptical of claims of healing, especially here, um, because of what you just said, because of the, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel movement where healing and acts or claims of healing is used as a claim for divine authority in their teaching, which I think is very dangerous and we should reject um, as a congregation. Okay, so before we end, I do want to briefly look at the testimony of, of cessationism, continuationism in church history. Um, and now this is just my opinion, so you don't, you can just tune out right here, but I am generally unconvinced by, and I do not put a ton of weight in the arguments to defend a position that lean heavily on the precedent from church history. Um, I do think historical precedent can be helpful. It's a good analysis, but it should not be the main ammunition, I think, in anyone's theological or doctrinal argument. Okay, off my soapbox. Um, but I do think the testimony from church history actually helps the cessationist position. So, But that could be because I'm a cessationist. Folks on both sides of this debate use the argument from church history to, to bolster their position. For instance, D.A. Carson, which, again, he's a continuationist, he argues in his book on the spiritual gifts that he says there, there is enough credible evidence that some form of charismatic gifts or miraculous gifts continued sporadically across the centuries of church, church history until our modern day. So that's his view of church history. Another continuationist who is actually a, a, a reformed charismatic so not many of those. A Reformed Charismatic, his name's Sam Storms. He's, he has a pretty extensive article online that you can find on Google um, that documents many of these miraculous accounts throughout the history of the church that deal with tongues, prophecy, and healing, specifically in the early church. Um, and there's many cessationists who, who you can find article an article online from cessationists who will who will cite things from history that, that prove that the gifts have ceased. So there, you can find things on both sides. I'm just going to briefly document the popular held beliefs some early church fathers had regarding the supernatural miraculous gifts. And what I, what I want us to remember here is that the New Testament canon was not officially recognized until, I think this is true, until the Council of Hippo, in 393 and the Council of Carthage in 397. So Shriner's argument poses that these gifts would begin to die out when the New Testament, the, the, the scriptures, the testimony of the apostles and prophets, right, which the church, uh, is, that's the foundation the church was built on, was formalized. 
So just keep that in the back of your mind. So one of the earliest accounts I found on the gift of prophecy was from the early apologist Justin Martyr, who died in 165. And he affirmed, pretty strongly, he affirmed the presence of prophetic gifts in his day. Irenaeus, who was a pupil of Polycarp, um, Irenaeus died in, in 202, so roughly the same time as Martyr. He, he strongly proclaimed that the presence of tongues, which for the record, he says is, is just known human languages, um, but he strongly argued that tongues, miracles, and healing was, was widely prevalent amongst the believers in his context, in his day. The, the early scholar and theologian Origen, I have a hard time saying that name, Origen, um, he lived from 185 to 253. He said he was an eyewitness to many miracles and healings, and it's generally believed he, he affirmed the continuation of tongues and prophecy in his day. Okay, so that was all pre-establishment of the canon. Now we get, after the establishment of the canon, Chrysostom, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople, wrote pretty clearly, you can, you can find this online, that, that the gift of tongues was no longer occurring in his context. So that, this would be, uh, I'm so bad at math, roughly 150 years, 200 years after the, these previous accounts. Um, and then we get to the giant Augustine, and everyone loves Augustine. People on both sides claim them in this debate. Um, so Augustine died in 430, and especially early on in his life, he argued pretty strongly that the, mirac the miraculous spiritual gifts ha had ceased in his day, um, especially the gift of tongues. So he wrote pretty extensively that the gift of tongues was no longer operative. But continuationists will point out, rightly, that Augustine also affirmed the presence of miracles and healing in his day. It's, in fact, it's famously been documented that in his own congregation, in his own parish, there were over 70 recorded miracles and healings in a two-year period. Um, so do you see why the, the argument from church history can be kind of unconvincing, or you can kind of choose what you want to highlight for your particular camp? But let's fast forward to the Reformation. Schreiner makes the claim in his book um, that the position he's arguing for, cessationism, was the position held and advocated by the great teachers of the Protestant Reformation. He just makes that claim. I think that's largely true, um, but I think it, it can be nuanced a little bit. Gavin Ortland wrote a pretty helpful article called Is Cessationism the Reformed View? To which he answers, that question with, well, it's complicated. Um, I think by and large, personally, I think it's safe to say the majority of the reformers and their disciples and later theologians in the reformed tradition, by and large, it's safe to say held to some form of cessationism, the majority. As we've already seen, guys like B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen from the Presbyterian tradition are cessationists. They are, they've heavily influenced I think the American Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Reformed community. John Calvin and John Owen, the two Johns, um, giants in the Reformed tradition, I think would be better categorized in the concentric cessationist camp, 
They both believe that the, the gifts have ceased to function in the church, but that God could and sometimes does grant these gifts as need and time demand, is, what, is how Calvin would write it, especially when the gospel is penetrating new places. Other reformers are continuationists, just flat-out continuationists, most notably Martin Luther and uh, the Scottish reformer John Knox. They believed, at, le- at least according to this Ortland article, that the, the miraculous spiritual gifts continue to function in the life of the church in their, in their context, in their day. So they were continuationists. So again, it's a really brief survey of, of key historical figures. I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said on this topic, but is there any questions, comments that y'all have on the history of this? Well, as we come to the, the end of this, this series of this lesson, um, at the end of our, our whole series, I, I hope we don't get lost on what is an important debate. I think this is a very important debate that, that we all need to wrestle with, that we all need to, to search the scriptures, um, search uh, our, our theological categories. We all need to come to a position on the spiritual gifts, the, the ceasing of them or the continuation of them. But I hope we don't lose out on remembering some of the glorious truths that we learned throughout this study um, over the past couple of months as, as we tried to shape our theology on the spiritual gifts. And it's been my prayer this series has, has given and will give us a greater understanding of the Spirit and His gifts that He has given each of us. And remember, He's given these gifts primarily for us to use them in this body to build up each other, to edify each other. And I think that is the glorious truth of this book um, and this series that I hope is impressed upon you. Um, So any final thoughts or questions on the whole series, on anything? Well, if not, y'all are dismissed. Thank you so much. Oh, wonderful.